Hello and welcome back to Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brent Helt. This episode, Sandman number 10, The Doll's House. Cover date, November 1989. Art again by Mike Drigenberg and Malcolm Jones III. And again, Robbie Bush as colorist, Ted Klein as letterer, and Art Young and Karen Berger as associate editor and editor. We finally have the beginning of the Doll's House arc in Honest. Yeah, this is a, a big issue. It's a, it's a big issue that sets up the entire story arc, uh, which I'm very excited about. I had kind of forgotten some of the details of this and rereading this to, to prepare to, to talk with you about it uh, has me super excited. And it was actually difficult for me to stop reading at the end of this issue. I kind of just wanted to binge it, but I decided that's probably not good for the podcast. So I didn't. Uh, but before we get into talking about this episode, I do want to take just a minute here to let people know about a bonus episode that we just released. And, you know, if you listen to any of our other shows, then you already know that Clay Temple media is completely crowdfunded via patreon we, we, we don't do any ads to, to make ends meet or anything like that and we love patreon because it, it lets us provide extra content for our supporters each month and most of those bonus episodes are germane to the big flagship shows that we do elder sign the gene wolf literary podcast and lower decks but we just released our first bonus episode featuring the two of us talking about comics. And this is an issue of Hellblazer that Neil Gaiman wrote. And we had a lot of fun doing that episode. At least that's how I remember it. Uh, and we think that you'll have a lot of fun listening to it as well. And we do also want to just say a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Uh, it is a lot of work managing the network and getting two podcasts a week out into the internet ether. And we couldn't do it without your support. And if you're not a Patreon supporter yet, please check it out at patreon.com slash Media. There are already about 50 bonus episodes up there that you'll get instant access to. And there are some other rewards, such as voting to decide what we cover on some of our shows. And, and you'll help us reach our stretch goals as well, which are all about doing more stuff for you. Glenn, as you said, we are very thankful for all of our patrons and helping support our network um, in all of the great content that... Uh, are provided in all of our shows and then they get a little extra bonus content and uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there um and it's always a great excuse for us to have other things to talk about in this case um another excuse to talk about john constantine but uh, there are a lot of other good things in the patron only feed all right. Well, on that note, let's get into the Doll's House. So at the, the start of this issue, we are going to get to meet two more members of the Endless family, Desire and Despair, which is very exciting. We begin in the Twilight Realm of Desire, and more specifically, we begin at Desire's Fortress, which is called The Threshold. And this is a massive statue of desire. Uh, we're told that it's it's larger than we can easily imagine and that it contains two eardrums larger than a dozen marble ballrooms. That's a, a simile I never thought I would hear. And the whole thing is made of blood and flesh and bone and skin. The, the body that is the threshold is nude, and it is standing upright with its arms held up in something like the pose a, a gymnast takes after sticking a landing, and there's a, a sly smile on its face. And in the middle of the chest is an opening where we can see the heart, and, and this heart is where desire dwells within the threshold, and, and we'll get inside and, and, and get to some action in, in just a minute. We also learn here on this first page that desire is a him, a her, and in it. And, and, and Gaiman writes this. Desire has never been satisfied with just one sex. 
And the, the threshold, though it is a statue of a person with, with very sharp, very beautiful features, doesn't have any sex organs. And I, I think there are a number of things to talk about right here, still just only two pages into this issue. But let's start with desire as as a concept, as as an abstraction. Uh, maybe we should say as an anthropomorphic personification, right? That's the, the language that we get, that death uses. The the type of desire that Gaiman is thinking about here is is not my love of bourbon or, or ice cream or Chicago style pizza, right? He's, he's thinking of sexual desire here. He's thinking specifically of lust, right? Yeah. He appears to be not that there aren't those who perhaps have a sexual desire associated with Chicago style pizza, uh, well worthy of it. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, it's, it's very uh, sexual imagery. Um, but also really kind of sharp, in terms of the image of the citadel, and I, I almost want to say, with the art uh, as presented in the in the collection, the original collection I have, with the kind of red eyes um, without any irises, it's just it's almost kind of a demonic kind of image. So it's it's playing a lot, I think, on um, sexual motifs as well as kind of more um, hedonistic representations of sexual desire. Yeah, hedonism is a is a great word here, right? I mean, we're using desire because, of course, the gimmick is all the endless need to to begin with D. But I think even better than lust probably is hedonism. I think that's a it's a great word. We'll have to keep that in mind. Um, but we get a strong sense, um, and even more so as we go, and a little bit kind of coming off of the story that we just came off of about how much damage desire can rot, how destructive desire can be, um, to borrow another D word. And so, I mean, unlike the other endless who we've met so far, dream and death and destiny, they don't feel as active. And we've seen dream do some terrifying things, but he and of himself, you're not worried about unless you cross him specifically, him being causing menace and being destructive to you. But very quickly off in this story, we get the sense that desire actively wants to cause kind of disruptions and in negative ways to um, uh, others around her, particularly her sibling, at least the one, but also perhaps others. I mean, I was left, you mentioned the imagery in terms of what the threshold is made out of, uh, that it's made from blood and flesh and bone and skin. And on the one hand, these are parts of, of, of a being and, you know, sexual representation of, of a creature and organic matter. But also you, I kind of got the sense that that isn't necessarily that desire has conjured the skin and blood um, and bone out of nothing, but that that's what people and creatures have perhaps given up to form the threshold, almost as if those things were taken by desire as payment for what desire return gives in return. Well, it's certainly really interesting to see desire here as as having such a close connection with actual uh, with with an actual body, right? So far, all the other endless, the you know, as you said, dream and destiny and death, seem to be kind of above that. Uh, that that although they have bodies, I mean, to the extent that that dream can even be imprisoned, the the way in which, or at least one of the ways in which he doesn't seem to be a, a human, doesn't seem to be like us, is that he seems to be aloof and and distant from the things that that concern us, the things that matter 
to us that drive us, but desire, which, which are, you know, desire is one of the things that drives us, it has a, a body here, or at least lives inside something that is a body. So is, is connected to a body. And I think that that's where, you know, hedonism is really one of the, the right things to be saying about desire. I, I'm also really interested in the realm of desire. We're, we're told here that it's a twilight realm, and, and we even see a twilight sky with some clouds in the background here behind the threshold. But the ground itself is is uh, a flat and shiny black surface with grid lines on it. I mean, frankly, it looks like the holodeck, right? And and this is such a contrast to Dream's realm, which, of course, has a palace, but also has a landscape and other inhabitants. So... What are we to make of Desire's realm here, right? Why why is it so barren and why is it Twilight and is it a holodeck? Yeah, I, I mean, a holodeck might be what it is. I envision it to be kind of like uh, the landscape of Tron. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's very sterile. So maybe the idea is that Desire doesn't, other than um, the fancy citadel, Desire, he, she, itself doesn't need to have a realm because it instead invasively is part of all of the other realms and kind of within the hearts of all of the kind of the creatures of the dc multiverse and versus being something that's distinct but but it's not entirely clear what are your thoughts I like this idea that the threshold itself, because it's so massive, right? And if we're thinking of the threshold as the equivalent to Dream's Palace, uh, and and it might be conceptually, but in terms of of size, in terms of space, it's several orders of magnitude larger than that. And and it might actually be, in terms of size, better to think of the threshold as the entire realm of of Dream. Uh, that and so yeah, the whole thing is really inside this body itself and that what the body is standing in is just a kind of nothingness that exists uh you know in the the twilight time this time between night and and day which is really kind of a gray nothing time and it occurs to me that perhaps i mean dream while he is extremely arrogant he probably does want people and things to consider him in some ways the way he wants to be perceived by others is that he doesn't necessarily want to be thought of he wants the work of his realm to be what people experience, but not himself. While desire is kind of a narcissist, right? And so having a realm in which literally the only thing that you can see is a giant, colossal, um, cyclopean, huge version of her, her slash him slash itself. Like that, that's a, that's a lot of narcissism there. And it's clearly gleefully on display in a way that, Dream would probably not be willing to admittedly do that himself of have a giant dream, you know, as his own palace versus having something else that while it owns, owes all fealty, fealty to him, it is not actually him manifest. Yeah, and I think I'm on Dream's side here. Uh, I would love to have a palace. That sounds awesome. But I do not. I definitely do not want it to be a giant statue <laughs> of myself, as highly as I think of myself. Well, okay, let, let's actually go inside the heart of the Threshold of Desire. The interior is pretty awesome, I think. The first thing that we see is a large room that looks like a music venue. There's a, a stage, and on that stage is a, a large projection screen, and there's a, a sound system. But it's also got bits of heart flesh on the periphery and and that part of the illustration at least to my eye harkens back to a hope in hell right it, it looks quite a bit like the landscape of hell 
It's the landscape of hell kind of in the rafters while a very kind of 80s synth music video on in the foreground um, and on the ground. And um, the annotated Sandman by Leslie Klinger has a quote from Neil Gaiman describing the room. Neil said, quote, I imagine it's bit a bit like the rooms that Roger Dean designs in his architectural capacity. No straight edges anywhere. And uh, Leslie Klinger goes on to note that Roger Dean was well known as a fantasy artist and includes futuristic buildings and rooms um, and designed structures to, to match his art. And I think that's, you know, what we're left to hear. It's a lot of rounded edges. Um, nothing perfectly circular, though. We're not talking about something that's like kind of mathematically round. We've got a lot of just curves and ovals and which is, you know, associated with human beings and particularly sexual organs there's a lot of things that are just curved yeah and we're told too that the the heart is connected throughout the rest of the threshold through long hallways corridors but that are basically the equivalent of of veins and and arteries and we see something of that here we see a uh, we we see a kind of reddish pink corridor that desire is is walking down i i have another question about uh the annotated sandman because i'm, I'm interested in this image that is on the screen it's a, a close-up of a person's face this person is smiling wearing sunglasses and i i think maybe this is supposed to be desire especially if we're doubling down on the narcissism but it is also a real photo photograph and i'm i'm wondering brendan if you have any details about what this is who this is I unfortunately don't from the annotated Sandman. Um, I believe it does note elsewhere that some people theorize that perhaps it was a picture of Neil, but it's not. So I don't know who that's a photo of. But yeah, it is. It's, uh, I mean, a, a similar to the statue itself, the, the face on the screen is laughing, um, and is smiling and, and, you know, having a great time, which also matches what we see when we see Desire kind of striding through the corridors wearing a wonderful suit and just having this great kind of smirk on, um, its face. Yeah, Desire is wearing a double-breasted periwinkle suit with shoulder pads. Also, the most '80s tie of all time. Uh, in fact, really, I would say that this whole thing looks like a like sexy '80s yuppie outfit. And I was also guessing here that you're going to tell me that this outfit that Desire is wearing is inspired by some like very specific music video or something. I don't actually have any detail on that. Although to me, it strikes me as. Um, was it Robert Palmer who had the uh, video with a bunch of uh, attractive women with kind of greased back straight hair? It's as if one of those women is wearing his suit, though, instead of um, just playing the bass. Oh, yeah, that's perfect. That's the addicted to love video. I can't yep. actually recommend that anyone go watch that. But I think <laughs> if they were to accidentally see that people would people would say that you're probably right on the money there. But I did wonder about that because we made such a big deal and, and Gaiman made such a big deal of having Lucifer look a lot like David Bowie. And so, you know, again, here we're getting a, a clear a set of clear parallels or connections to uh, the music scene right of the of the 1980s. And so I thought perhaps this was inspired by something specific. Well, that's not really what we're actually doing here. So what we are here for, what we are in the heart of the threshold of Desire for is to, to follow Desire out of this music venue, I guess, and, and down one of these arteries to a dark room with white panels on the wall. And each of these contains the sigil of one of the Endless Family. 
and we only see the the sigils for the members that we've met so far, which is, you know, just basic storytelling, I guess. And so we see Death's Ankh, we see Destiny's book, and then also Dream's helm. And Desire pauses at Dream's helm and says, Big Brother, I'm watching you. And then kisses the helm. And of course, this is ominous. We're going to find out more about it in just a moment. But what Desire is really doing here is calling Despair. And so we see Despair's sigil, which is a a ring with a sharp hook protruding from it. And Desire picks this up and says, Attend, sweet sibling. I stand in my gallery and I hold your sigil. Will you talk to me? And this summons Despair, who now appears in Desire's gallery. And and I love this detail about how the Endless operate and also a glimpse into the, the rules of this speculative universe. This is maybe one of my, my favorite scenes here from this prologue. Yeah, it's some great world building we have here in terms of how the Endless interact with each other um, outside of when Destiny sees something in his book or when death happens to come across dream moping somewhere in New York city near some soccer players. (laughs) But um, the fact that they have kind of this ritual way of communicating with each other. And we'll see this repeated elsewhere in the series where they all seem to have these rooms with each other's sigil um, and the ability then to call to each other using that. Because uh, particularly in the day of free cell phones, this is uh, this is the way to do it. And I was struck uh, initially by the way that this page is laid out, because as you said, it starts with the sigils for the three uh, siblings, three members of the Endless who we've met prior to Desire. And then Desire is kind of in the frame in front of where another sigil would be, but we don't see until the third row when uh, Desire has stepped away from the row the of, of sigils that that panel the fourth one is actually blank and then i love that the representation that least desire has in uh, its own uh, threshold here and it, it within its heart is just of its own smiling kind of smirking face again which i think is great that's also just the way that desire wants to think of desire you know, I actually had not noticed that this panel was blank, the one between Dream's Helm and this image of Desire. I just kind of overlooked it because there's nothing there. But obviously, that's intentional. And there's even an allusion here that we're going to get on the next page to someone referred to as the prodigal and wondering if that person has returned and that person has not, though we will perhaps encounter that person in the future. And then we can't, we as you mentioned despair's sigil is a ring with a hook on it um it's very tiny in the panel and in fact it's on some kind of a a red like felt rectangle of some kind or you know jeweler's cloth just to even see it but it's probably intentionally kind of small not just because it's a ring but also perhaps because in despair you feel tiny um but then we can't tell what the final panel is it just looks like swirly lines and we don't know if it's just something that's not quite in view for us as the viewer or if it is that the you know the final d is two words and it's dense fog Right. I think we'll actually be able to come back to that in the future as well and see that there's already purpose and intention in the way that that's drawn, which is which is absolutely fantastic. This is also a detail that I I had not noticed until uh, this moment. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Well, let's turn the page and and meet despair. So that's two new endless in one issue and and really just in the first five pages here. in, In fact, so despair is 
Desire's twin sister, and she also is pale-skinned and, and black-haired like the rest of the Endless, and she also is nude, but where Desire is clearly sexy, Despair is about as frumpy as you can get. And here now is where we actually get some story happening. So Desire, as you've alluded to already, Brent, Desire is up to something. She wants to snare Dream in her machinations. And it turns out that, yeah, this is not the first time that she has tried this. And we learn here that the Nada incident was something that Desire had arranged. And while that was a failure, the, the this time, things are going to go differently because there is a dream vortex, the first dream vortex for a long time. And this dream vortex is a woman. And for now, the plan is just to wait. Uh, Despair is not on board with this yet, though, but this is an interesting development. And so she'll think about it. And, and that brings this scene to a close. And our story, as you've said, Brent, now has something kind of uh, akin to a villain, someone who is actively working against dream, though we don't know why or, or really understand how just yet and we already see from where we've experienced this the story just preceding this one with with nada but also when we find out what it resulted in dream doing where nada is trapped in hell we've seen the terrible ramifications of when desire has before attempted to mess with her brother dream so we, we definitely kind of set up the stakes here um, of someone who is not accidentally dealing with one of dreams, you know, articles of power or, you know, someone who, in the case of Anthony Burgess, who will eventually die. Um, in this case, we have another endless who can, as despair mentioned, they have a lot of, or desire mentioned is to despair. They have a lot of time, so they can wait for things to uh, bear fruit. There's something really interesting here, right? This idea that desire can actually have an effect on dream. The, the endless family, as we understand it right now, are these anthropomorphic personifications of abstract concepts of, of properties of the, the universe, right? Aspects of reality that affect us, right? So these are, are different things that affect our lives, right? We, we, we dream, uh, we do have desire. We all feel despair at some point and we're all going to die and, and we're going to meet some other D's as well as this goes on. But I guess I would think that the members of the endless would be immune from the effects of the, their, their siblings, their, the other members of their family. But that does not seem to be the case here, right? It seems that actually perhaps, although we're, we, we question the veracity of what we saw in Tales in the Sand to begin with, but it's quite possible that the horrible behavior of Dream was because he was under the strong influence of desire. That's a, a real interesting cosmological world building detail here. Yeah, or perhaps him initially he was under the um, the effects of desire, and then in realizing that it, desire was the one affecting him, he became so frustrated he took it out on Nada, which might have been the case as opposed to Nada. Their desire being the reason why Dream is a terrible at the end. It may be that Dream is the terrible villain at the end of that story because of Dream. 
and something else we should probably talk about here before we before we move on to what what really is going to be the the main event here in this issue is the the idea of desire and despair being twins you know and we might even see the behavior of of dream as starting in desire and then ending in despair during this this nada incident and you know, this is an experience i think that we all have in our lives right the despair the this feeling of hopelessness is something that happens i think probably only because there's actually something that we have wanted uh you know not necessarily just a, a tangible material object or a person but uh, a type of life or something like that and when we aren't able to fulfill that desire right then we can feel despair we can feel hopelessness and i like the idea that that gaiman is pairing them as kind of uh, two sides of a, a single coin perhaps yeah, it's a really interesting concept. And here we have Despair having a similar barbed ring on uh, its hand and it tearing into its own flesh with that. Not because something particularly bad has happened, but just because, because that's what Despair does, is Despair is self-inflicting in its wounds. While Desire, based on the evidence we have so far, doesn't inflict wounds on Desire. Desire inflicts wounds on other people. Or has them inflict wounds on other people? Yeah, so far, this is not an uplifting idea of what love is. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever see an uplifting uh, version of love in, in, in The Sandman. I guess maybe we did a little bit with, uh, with John Constantine. Yeah, I think we did there. But also, I think it's important for us to note, it's probably not just the play on the letter D, that this is desire, which while related to love, is not the same thing as love in an abstract concept. Right, which does not actually get a, a member of the Endless, uh, which I think is really fascinating because I think that most of us, if we were to you know, be given this as a brief uh, in writing our own fantasy story, you know, come up with anthropomorphic personifications of the most important things in human experience, uh, love is one that we would we would go to, right? But it's not really here in the, the Sandman universe. So that's really fascinating as well. Yeah. Given how much uh, time that we know uh, Neil Gaiman as with many kind of Western audiences have thought about particularly Greco-Roman mythological figures, like this is no Aphrodite. We are not presented here. Desire is in many ways the opposite of what we've been presented in art as kind of a god or goddess kind of of love or sexual attraction before, not just visually, in being more androgynous and and having kind of uh, a nice powerful suit but also just a little bit more kind of of a hostile edge to uh desire than than you would expect to see if this was a story about like aphrodite so we are we've leave the twins um in a great pose of desire um with uh its arms up kind of in the same way it's threshold statue is and then we're brought to an airplane and the airplane is um landing uh in england and uh rose is being told to wake up by her mother and we're given a description um of what neil gaiman wrote in the script to describe miranda walker and her daughter rose and this is again from the annotated sandman by leslie clear and miranda walker is 56 a thin nervous woman hair graying slightly Real American middle class solid type. Good cheekbones, but she's getting a slight double chin. Not badly dressed. Not well dressed. Somebody's mother. 
She chain smokes, not when we see <laughs> see her. Hair a dark brown with some gray in it. I had to laugh because of the not when we see her for see her because uh, <laughs> obviously if she's on a plane and uh, in the late eighties uh, you're no longer smoking. Neil's script goes on though and notes uh, the description for Rose Rose Walker. She's about twenty two ish. As I said to you on the phone, I have Suzanne Vega in mind at this point. She's slightly too thin, waif-like, ballet dancer build, great cheekbones. She got from her father. Her hair is shortish and shaggily cut, a mix of colors, red and blonde and black. People naturally assume she streaks it and maybe she does. No makeup, pale lips, and big green eyes. Dress her in loose-ish, casual clothes, slightly baggy blouse, jeans maybe, not stunningly attractive, or at least not comic book attractive. The main thing is to make sure she looks like herself, and not like half a hundred other comic book females. You know the ones I mean. Any of the interchangeables. She's Rose Walker. And so she is. So we are introduced here to Rose Walker. I love that she's also Suzanne Vega, right? So again, Neil Gaiman just drawing on musicians. I think this reinforces uh, my claim that he must have someone in mind with desire uh, as as well. This is this is the thing to ask him if we ever uh, get to see him at a con or a book signing or, or, or something like that. Well, so Rose Rose Walker here is going to be our main character, and she's even going to occasionally serve as our narrator. And and as you've said, Brent, what they're doing is flying to England from the United States, and it's a long flight. Rose has uh, been asleep on the plane, and she's just woken from a dream in which she was living in a house with a huge fat British guy and some women. Uh, I think we, we've all been there, I guess. And uh, this is kind of a throwaway line here at this point in the story, but it is going to come back, of course, because, you know, this is a story about dreams and in which dreams matter. But what matters here in this moment is that Rose and her mother have been summoned to England by a mysterious benefactor about whom they know nothing, not even a name. And they're then met at the airport by this mysterious benefactor's solicitor, a guy named Mr. Holdaway, who looks like the, the spitting image of Tommy Lassels as he's depicted in The, the Crown. <laughs> and uh, this guy here, Mr. Holdaway, also Tommy Lassels too, uh, is basically the anthropomorphic personification of Edwardian Britishness. And I absolutely love it. He's great. And I, you know, I had that image in my head, but I hadn't even until you said it put together that this is uh, Tommy Lassels from the from the crowd. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the spitting image. It's unbelievable. It's completely uncanny how much they look just identical to each other. I'm not sure that the actor who plays Tommy Lassels is a real person and not just like the walking <laughs> image from this comic book page. Uh, but we don't need to spend any more time on that. So what's going on here is that Holdaway is driving the walkers to meet their mysterious benefactor when Rose falls asleep in the, the back of the car, jet lag, you know, and uh, she has a dream and we're going to join her for this dream. We begin at the house of secrets where Lucian is asking Abel some questions about the inhabitants and it turns out that he's taking a census which is part of Dream's agenda as he rebuilds and reconstitutes his realm and we follow Lucian around for a little while and we see some interesting inhabitants of the dreaming uh, these include a sentient mannequin and also a knight with glowing red eyes but at the end of this uh, he returns to the palace to report his findings and here we get our biggest glimpse so far of the interior of dreams palace and uh, uh you know, mild spoiler here i'm gonna have some more to say about that later 
And during the census, uh, he mentions, uh, or he learns from Abel that among other things, in the House of Secrets, um, one of the residents is the Bottle Imp. And, uh, Leslie Klinger's Annotated Sandman noticed, notes that, that the Bottle Imp is a classic short story by Robert Louis Stevenson, first published in 1891, about a spirit in a bottle that grants wishes with grave consequences. So again, we're seeing here this idea of dream as the the prince of stories. That it's not just you know our nocturnal sleep time visions that are in this realm, but but even our stories, the stories that we actually commit into to writing. There's there's another real interesting feature uh, to the way that this dream is being represented, which is that the the visuals here, the art on the page switches from portrait to to landscape. So you have to actively turn the book in your hands. I think it's a real cool effect. I wasn't sure what the purpose was. Is there anything about this in the annotated Sandman? There is not a specific reference to it, but um, I'm aware that at least prior to immediately prior to this time in comics in the 1980s, uh, two well-known uses of kind of this force the reader to start turning things themselves are done by successfully by Alan Moore um, and also by Dave Sim in uh, Cerebus, in which usually it's uh, intentionally either to you're signaling something's entering a dream state or otherwise things are kind of off. And so you have the reader themselves be kind of unsettled with having to manipulate the book in a way that is different from how they would expect. And some people find it annoying. Um, I, I think in this case it's well done. Uh, it kind of depends though on how thick the volume is you're reading this from. I think with an individual issue, it is a lot easier. And if you've got just the doll's house collection, that's one thing. I think when you've got some of the larger bound collections of 50 issues of Sandman, then, uh, it becomes probably more of a nuisance than anything. But, uh, <laughs> yes, I'll, um, I will attest to that for sure. <laughs> but it kind of nicely, I think, differentiates between what's going on when you're in the dream world and it signals like the, we are now in the dream world and Rose is experiencing things as a viewer versus kind of the normal waking world. Although interestingly in Desire's realm, we were as with the waking realm right up atop. So it's only really the dream world where we're getting this slightly different view. Although it's also only when we're viewing things kind of from Rose, Rose's perspective. Um, and we have a weird kind of, it's not the clock that we've seen before, but there is the a timepiece, um, a stopwatch, it looks like, or a pocket watch that is kind of appearing a couple places in the imagery here, first kind of even over Rose's head as she falls asleep. Yes, and when we see it there, it's difficult to tell the time, but we're going to see it again in a few pages, and there we can tell the time. I'll, I'll point out what it is when we when we get there, because I'll be interested to see if that means anything to you, or if that's that's noted in the, the annotated Sandman. So among the wonderful places that Lucian is stepping through, um, connected to Dream's Castle in some way, or are a lot of great motifs. I, I appreciate him walking over like a swimming pool on a diving board that never ends. But also at one point, he clearly seems to be either stepping into or out of bag at bag's end. Yeah, there's this great image of just basically a, a big boulder that's right next to a body of water, some kind of a stream or a lake or something with a door in the middle of the boulder. And yeah, somebody lives in there. It does look very hobbitish, but the one thing that gives it away is not being 
Hobbitish though is that the doorknob is not in the middle of the door. Ah, that's a good point. Also, there are no uh, turnips or carrots being grown right outside. And I think these are probably all just moves that they made so they wouldn't get sued by the the Tolkien estate because Christopher <laughs> Tolkien is pretty hardcore about that. <laughs> well, let's let's get to the the substance of what Lucian is going to report uh, to to Dream about the the results of this census. So what what matters here is that. There are some dreams that have gone missing during Dream's imprisonment, and in particular, and especially, four of the the major arcana are gone. And these are Brute and Glob, who look a little like Clayface and and used to be palace servants, though uh, Lucian says that he never trusted them. And I wondered, Brent, are these characters from the wider DC universe, or are these new inventions? Are Brute and Glob Gaiman's inventions? So Brute and Glob actually were in the 1970s short-run Sandman series, um, as was the character of Jeb, who Rose mentions a brother Jeb um, at one point that she had found him um, in the dream that she had that we didn't get to see. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if we see additional mentions of these. But again, they it's an instance where Neil is kind of building on the continuity of Sandman's past. We've seen bits and pieces of this earlier, particularly in the first couple issues of the run. And now we've, we've got the little bit of revisiting in there. So kind of it's a, at this point, at least a nice wink and nod to long-term DC continuity fans. Uh, but also it, it, it could be leading to something else, which we'll see as we go. Right. So also missing is the Corinthian, who's a, a normal looking human man, except for the part where he has teeth in his eye sockets. And Dream says that this, this could be bad news. I, I, I've always understood that the Corinthian was Gaiman's invention. Is that right? Yes. As far as I know, the Corinthian is Gaiman's invention. And uh, there's a description in Leslie Klinger's Annotated Sandman. Um, and just so that we don't read the audience every interesting thing in Leslie Klinger's <laughs> Annotated Sandman, there is a wonderful description setting up the throne room that I'm not going to read from because it is too long for me to pick out something that's particularly quick and I don't want to just read the whole book to you. So, uh, reader, I encourage you to find yourself a copy of the Annotated Sandman and take a look at that. But uh, for the Corinthian description... Neil uh, Gaiman explains, quote, he's called the Corinthian, a word I'm using here in its old sense of a rake or fashionable whore or dandy. Thus, brothels were known as Corinth, since both types of Corinthians went there. It originally comes from the Greek island of Corinth. Of course, we are looking at a fashionably dressed young man, fashionably in the 1820s anyway. So, I mean, here we do have him kind of in a wonderful checkered kind of i can't tell if it's a vest or if it's part of his coat or but uh he's something else but he's got teeth for eyes and that's extremely unsettling Yes, nobody wants to actually meet the Corinthian in real life, no matter how dapper his uh, his waistcoat is. Well, well, finally, the last one that is is missing is Fiddler's Green, which is uh, a place. And, and Dream comments that this is particularly strange because Fiddler's Green is a vavasaur of his own domain. I have to say, I love the use of this word vavasaur, which is a, a term from high medieval and late medieval property law. And it, it refers to the lowest class of landlords, which is to say people who have have a little bit of land that they in turn rent out to peasants or on which they are managing some serfs. Uh, so here, I think it must imply that Fiddler's Green is a dream with some small territory and, and 
probably even some dreams that he is responsible for and can command in some way, though uh, perhaps we'll find out if, uh, if Gaiman really is thinking this technically about medieval property law a little bit later. And what I love about Fiddler's Green in this depiction we have is that Fiddler's Green is a place. It is not an anthropomorphic. There's not a head. There's not an, two arms and two legs or even six arms and seven legs. It's a circular place. It reminds me of, in DC continuity, there's a green lantern who is actually a planet. Um, and he's literally a planet. Um, and he is a green lantern as well. Um, <laughs> so here we have a place that is Fiddler's Green. And Fiddler's Green... Um, the Annotated Sandman notes is a legend of a sailor's heaven. It's a resting place. According to the Annotated Sandman, it's a resting place of sailors who die on shore. I've heard it told otherwise that it's also just perhaps a resting place for sailors who have a certain amount of time they've spent on the high seas. Um, he also notes, Leslie Klinger does in the Annotated Sandman, that the U.S. Army uh, sometimes has a claim to Fiddler's Green as well, and that there's a U.S. Cavalry uh, ballad from a uh, manual from 1923 that references Fiddler's Green. Um, so I don't know if you study that at your time in the service, Glenn. No, I know that was not a song that we ever heard. You know, most of the army songs that I heard were, were cadences that we would use to, to run to. I guess the cavalry guys didn't have to do a lot of running for PT, so uh, they didn't make their song uh, fall into that rhythm. So I did not learn <laughs> that one. Well, apparently you will miss out then because uh, Fiddler's Green is apparently for the American cavalry. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm sure that I can convince Brandon uh, that he and I should learn this song and uh, perhaps we'll record ourselves singing it uh, coming to a podcast network near you very soon, whether you want it or not. That will definitely have to be a high uh, priced item on the Patreon feed. And I think that you will easily get the dollars necessary to make that recording <laughs> yeah right i think what we actually should do is set a new goal where if we reach a certain amount we promise we won't do that <laughs> so, well these absences of these uh these four major arcana uh, are going to be a matter of concern for dream but it turns out that this is not even the most important thing that is actually going on uh and as dream and lucian are, are getting ready to discuss that matter here they descend some steps into the throne room and and this is where we see in the background behind some stone columns uh really just kind of hidden in the background that this mystical clock is there it's returned and here the time appears to be 409 that didn't mean anything to me but i wondered if that meant something to you brent it meant nothing to me at all but yeah it clearly appears to be about 409 uh or 410 it is not 420 for the stoners in the audience so i i don't know what to make of it well, I'm going to pay attention to this. I mean, you've, I'm really heightenedly sensitive now to these clocks, <laughs> and I'm like going to keep track of what time they all are. There's got to be a code here. I'm going to get like some cork board and some strings and some thumbtacks, black and white photos of, I don't know, people, random people just for no reason and see if I can uh, put it all together. Uh, but that's the only clue that we have here. So, okay, of course, we know already what the other matter is because Desire's already told us, and it's that there is a dream vortex. And Lucian is pretty freaked out about this, but Dream is actually much calmer. He's, in fact, he's quite calm about it. He's already looked into it, and he knows that the Dream Vortex is not a thing this time. Instead, it's a person. It's a woman. It's Rose Walker. And she's here in the palace watching them. And, and here Gaiman gives us uh, another great word. It's annulet. Uh, this means little ring. And, and it comes when Dream says, yes, she's a true annulet, which... Seems like a pretty strange thing to say. 
Yeah, it, it's a really strange thing to say. Um, it's not quite as strange as Vavasaur, but uh, <laughs> it is up there. Um, but yeah, he seems very kind of calm and sedate and as he's pointing to the corner of the room. And the panel then turns to us as if we, again, um, we are viewing things from Rose Walker's perspective. Yeah, and it looks like Lucian is really actually about to come out of the page. It's it's kind of an unsettling image. It's uh, it's also quite well done. It's a very beautiful uh, drawing of uh, you know close up of uh, of a person's face. It's very good. Well, so so Rose wakes up from this this dream, and and now they have arrived at a posh nursing home where they are finally at last going to meet their mysterious benefactor. And this turns out to be an old woman who is none other than Unity Kincaid, who will remember was afflicted with a sleeping sickness during dreams imprisonment and spent most of her life asleep. And as we saw way back in Sleep of the Just, while she was being cared for in a, a home, in fact, it's this home that she's in right now, someone raped her and she gave birth to a child. And that child, I think as we can all see coming, was Miranda Walker, who was adopted and then taken to the U.S. And, and doesn't know any of this story. And now that Dream is free and Unity Kincaid has woken up, she's tracked down her family, uh, though not, apparently, as you mentioned earlier, Brent, Rose's brother, Jed, which is someone Rose keeps thinking about. Um, so this is a, a big and it's, it's, it's also a pretty heartbreaking scene, I'll say. W when we last saw Unity Kincaid, it was just as she was waking up after decades of sleep and and you know, even though she'd been sleeping this whole time, she knew that she had had a, a, a baby. She'd dreamed that. And and even though Gaiman doesn't show any of this to us, we can I think we can imagine her inner turmoil and heartbreak as she realizes that she's suddenly old, even though she was a teenager the last time she was conscious, and that her parents are dead, and that she's alone and and we even see here that she has a real attachment to her parents or her her, her family uh, and this comes in the form of a doll's house that is a replica of her family home which had been sold off after her her parents died and obviously this is important right it's the, the name of the issue of the, the and the, the name of the story arc here and we see in some of the panels that there's a miniature dream looking out one of the upper windows and smiling. And I had a real question about this, Brent, which is to which, and the question is simply this, is this real? Is dream actually miniaturized and hiding in the dollhouse so that he can watch Rose Walker, who is this dream vortex, or is this just like a representation? Is this just a cute thing that the artists were doing? It's very Indian in the cupboard, but it, it strikes me as, on the one hand, I would expect that Dream would, at least in part, be very curious about the Dream Vortex, about Rose Walker, um, and so would be perceiving her. But it, it's very off-putting that the small Dream in the doll's house is smiling, because that's not something we see Dream almost ever do. No, I mean, he looks like a, a sort of pixie character, right? Like a little uh, Disney-sized fairy who's up to some mischief he's like a like a tinkerbell kind of figure and it just doesn't it doesn't work for me is what i what i will say and i don't think it's ever mattered to me quite as much as it did on this reading and i want to believe that he's not really there but he he must be right i mean he must be otherwise 
Because uh, other than um, when Rose encounters three women in a broom closet, we're led to believe that everything she's experiencing when we're not flipping the comic on its side is normal and behaving by regular laws of physics and not small, impish, smiling personifications of dream. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's not entirely clear, but it could be that that's even just a... Some kind of minor glimmer from uh, who knows? I yeah, I I don't know what to make of it, and it's it's an interesting artistic choice, and I wish I had a better sense as to why it's there, other than just the parallelism of show dream in the corner of a, the dollhouse, looking at Rose, just as we saw from Rose's perspective, her being in the corner of his throne room looking at dream so there's some nice parallelism there but i don't know that we have a strong sense as to what the ideas behind any of that are and again if he wasn't smiling i would say oh that's definitely dream apparently he's just shrunk himself down well i this is one that i'm going to be looking forward to hearing about on the the forum so i have jumped us ahead a little bit i've actually alighted two scenes together here and i've skipped over one so let's go back to what we skipped there is a little more drama around this revelation that the people miranda walker thinks of as her parents weren't her biological parents and and this prompts rose to to leave the room and while she's gone as you suggest brent she has a bit of an adventure As she is walking down the hallway of this nursing home, someone summons her into a room, and when she enters, she is greeted by the three witches, the Hecatii, the the maid, the mother, and the crone, and they know all about Rose Walker. She's at a crossroads, they say. Her whole family is, including her brother Jed, though they they tell Rose to be satisfied with her own newly found trinity of women. Uh, and there's a lot of a lot of mystery being built up around who this brother is, why he's not here, and what he's actually up to, and and so on. And they say that they are here to to caution her, to protect her. And naturally, Rose is freaked out by this encounter, and she asks, "Who are you?" As I think any of us would. But of course, this is the wrong question. She has wasted her one question that she gets to ask the fates, and they they scold her for this. And and this line is important, so let's just read it. Had you asked the right question, I could have warned you against the Corinthian, told you of Jed and of Morpheus, and then they wish her luck, and they are gone. And there are some really ominous things going on in the art here as well, including the Hakatii taking on the appearance of an owl and a black cat, but especially of another clock. And, and this one is painted on the ceiling of this room. Yeah, and so we've got the clock very much in the image. And I I was trying to trace the questions that Rose asks to the answers. And I feel like this isn't as tight as we, in other times we've seen the three witches. Because she asks, who's there? Then she asks, do I know you? And I feel like they don't really answer those questions in a satisfying way. And then she says, Jed, you know about Jed, who are you? And I guess they say, well, each of us has a name. And then protect me from what? And then I, I mean, they're kind of, they're, they're playing coy. So on the one hand, particularly in the response you read, Glenn, they're kind of being mean in saying, you didn't ask the right questions, but I'm not sure that they 
Not that the three witches ever particularly do go out of their way to be direct in their response, but it feels like they're going intentionally even further out of their way to, to be mysterious here. Although they do specifically note that they could warn, could have warned against the Corinthian. So they do at least let drop to Rose that the Corinthian, whomever, whatever that is, we, we've seen him, but, and perhaps Rose has seen something during one of her dreams. It's not clear. So perhaps she has a warning against the Corinthian specifically, um, where maybe she wouldn't have before. But I don't know. I mean, how do you take this kind of interplay of the three witches? I mean, they were not summoned. They showed up of their own volition. Was it to taunt Rose? Is it to help Rose? Is it just because they want to build suspense for the sake of the reader? Yeah, this is a great question because it it's really the question of what are the rules? And I think you're spot on to point out that when we saw them before in the, in preludes and nocturnes, dream got to ask each of them a, a question, not, not them collectively a single question. And we do see that here. Rose asks three questions, but they don't actually answer all of them. Uh, that, yeah, that's a, that's a great catch, but you're also right to point out. Yeah. That, that, that when we saw them before they had to be summoned. It's not like they're just walking around, looking to help people out uh this is actually kind of an imposition on them uh, which is why they're maybe a little salty and a little cranky and have you know have this rule about answering only the one question because otherwise they're going to be there all day right answering questions for people but they do come here voluntarily and i don't know that i have any answers as to why yet but i have to believe that Gaiman knows what he's up to and that we are going to have an answer to that question eventually, or that there's going to be some significance to the fact that they have shown up here voluntarily to deliver some kind of information to Rose. And maybe we might even decide that we can believe that they've actually told Rose everything they were ever going to tell her. They just also like to scold her, but all they were ever going to say was you should pay attention to the Corinthian Something's up with Jed and watch out for Morpheus. And that was all they were ever going to say to begin with. <laughs> uh, we do get some fun kind of imagery play here where last time we saw them, they were kind of swapping places with one another. In this case, uh, we see where one of them turns into an owl and another one a cat while the crone stays the crone throughout, um, which I think is is interesting. Uh, and the time on the clock appears to maybe be 4.50. So maybe this is 30 minutes, 20 minutes later, 30 minutes later from 4.10. It's, it's hard to say, but. Yeah, this might actually just be telling us what time it, it is. Cause I would absolutely believe that it was a little bit after four in the afternoon, uh, when they're seeing Unity Kincaid, uh, or when they're on their way to Unity Kincaid's. It's clearly daytime at that point. So yeah, and it's been about half an hour, I guess. Yeah. So that makes sense to me. Well, after this encounter, Rose returns to Unity's room, and, and this is where we get the backstory about hiring a detective to, to find them and that sort of thing. And this scene concludes with Unity giving Rose a ring, uh, an amulet. And Rose realizes that this has some connection to what she heard in her dream, and she says, It's all coming true, isn't it? My dreams. The woman in the hall closet. She knew about Jed. She said, I should beware of the Corinthian. What's the Corinthian? And that really brings us to the, the close of this issue, except for a, a one-page coda that's going to tease us into the, the next issue as, as well. But there is a lot uh, that is teased here with, uh, with the, the, the three women, the Hecatei, and Rose's dream seemingly coming true. 
And we have a lot of imagery we should mention when it comes to Miranda and Unity and Rose, um, that they also are obviously three women. They are in their own way are the maiden, the mother and the crone. Um, and I think there's a lot of fun that's done here in the art in terms of depicting the three of them in different positions kind of near each other. And I think it's intentional to kind of juxtapose them to the character of the three witches. And and that may even hold some kind of clue as to why they have shown up, that that there's some connection in some way, that the Hakatii, perhaps one of the things, one of the attributes that they have is this idea of of uh, different generations of women, and that that's, uh, that's in their purview, and that's what they're trying to protect here in in some way uh i you know i don't know if that will turn out to be true but but definitely the art is doing a lot to to draw our attention to the fact that rose her mother and her grandmother look a lot like the hakatii i wonder if we would have had an appearance by the hakatii in uh tales in the sand the last issue if we had gotten the tale that the women tell each other and not the tale that the men tell each other in the tribe Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. That's going into my headcanon for sure. So then, as you mentioned, we kind of have ended the story or paused it for the issue, but we kind of have this coda one page piece to pile on how ominous things are and to ratchet up our fear a little bit um, in this last page um, where the gentleman's at the Love Inn Motel getting himself um, some wine and then we find out that he has a young man, um, or boy, it's hard to tell the age, bound up in his shower. And the young boy says that he is, he's okay with the, he doesn't mind the kinky stuff, but he wants to be untied. And then he'll do whatever the man wants. And then ominously, the man seems to remove his sunglasses and pull out a knife and say that it's playtime. And it's, this is, this is the return to the full form of kind of the horror comic that occasionally the Sandman comic has dipped, uh, dipped or fully waded into, um, throughout the last 10 issues. Yeah. Though I, I don't know that at this point with everything that we've read with the Sandman, if this were my first time through, if I would have expected this kind of, uh, serial killer, uh, type of, of, of imagery here, that's not what I would have expected in this story. I, I do want to say that, uh, well, one first thing to say is that this, this, this boy, I think this probably is, you know, a runaway teenager who's working as a, a prostitute, uh, that he has a name. It's Davy. So this is not Jed, though. That's certainly what I thought when I turned the page. Right. Uh, and he, says at some point here he says he says oh no no oh no and the point at which he does that is when this guy removes his sunglasses and of course we've seen someone earlier in this issue who has a real eye problem right the corinthian who has teeth for eyes so i think we can safely surmise at this point that this is the corinthian yeah and as dream said it might be a big problem that the corinthian is um out and on the loose um and i mean he is he is a nightmare creature so um the idea of a waking nightmare wandering the contemporary america then a serial killer is maybe what you would get i do happen to say i like though um 
the uh, imagery and at f- the first time I saw this, I don't think I maybe even the second or third time I read this um, comic, I didn't even notice that it was clearly the his sunglasses, which was causing everything to kind of be the blue and white. I just kind of was so thrown off by the tonal shift from Rose's multicolored hair to kind of this two tone kind of a blue and black lines than to now see, which I saw, I think, again, in the fourth or fifth read. This is probably the tenth read for me. I don't know. But the sunglasses, I think it's really one well done to play with the color here of the difference between when he's wearing the sunglasses and not in, in a kind of subtle way. Right. In this one-page coda here, we're seeing everything actually through the eyes of the Corinthian. I, I want it to stay that way because that will mean that we won't ever have to actually see him unless he passes in front of a mirror. Uh, but I know that's not going to be true. We are going to actually have to see the Corinthian, and I'm going to cringe every time. He's one of the scariest uh, scariest fictional characters I, I can think of is the Corinthian. Uh, but we aren't quite there yet, though we can continue to talk about him as we transition into uh, our wrap-up for this issue because he is on the cover art. You know, I can't tell, Glenn, if he is on the cover art. So tell me your thinking. Ah, yes. Okay. So to me, this does seem to be an image of the Corinthians' face, though it is largely in shadow, right? So we don't see his eyes. But there are some markings under his eyes uh, that, that to me suggest that we're, we're supposed to be looking there. And his hair looks, uh, to me a little bit like it did when we saw him uh, in his, his 19th century waistcoat uh, and so on um but maybe maybe it's not the corinthian who who do you think it is if it's not the corinthian i initially thought it was desire but i think that's because of the um way that the binding around the image of the face appears to be almost the skin that's being pulled back by metal and almost like fish hooks which reminded me a little bit of the cavity of desire's threshold but then i noticed more the figure's hair and kind of the different streaks of color in it and i think i think that's supposed to be rose walker in the image although this actually brings up something interesting about the comic as a whole so We've oftentimes gotten things in Sandman issues at this point from the kind of omniscient third person point of view in terms of the art. Here, though, we are granted two different kind of perspective characters in addition to the third person view. One is Rose Walker and the fact that she is the one who is seeing things in the dream world and we're seeing things kind of through her eyes and a little bit when she's interacting with the three witches that might be from her point of view. And then also, as you mentioned in the last page, the Corinthian, we are seeing things from his eyes, teeth, yeah, don't don't ask how the physiology of that works. Yeah, right? from his molar point of view. Um, and so, I mean, maybe this is just kind of a collage and in some ways kind of a bit of Rose, a bit of the Corinthian and a bit of Desire all kind of bound together in, in a way that's linked like a vortex. I don't know. Well, one thing that definitely stands out here in this image is that whoever this person is, this person is wearing uh, an earring. We only see one ear, so we, we, we don't know if there are two earrings being worn here. But this earring is a cross. I didn't notice if, if Rose Walker was wearing a cross earring, but she seems like the only person who would be, right? This doesn't seem like something the Corinthian would be doing, and, and, and Desire definitely was not. 
Yeah, and I don't think we ever see anyone wearing an earring in the issue itself. Yeah, I think, you know, I think this is the first cover that we've had where we weren't really sure what was on it, actually. So this, again, this will be a real fun conversation to have on the forum, and I would encourage people to come in and uh, weigh in with their opinion. Or, you know, if the answer just seems so obvious to you, you can just come tell us what buffoons we are and uh, and point out the obvious thing that we, we have missed. We'll look forward to that. I can tell you that according to uh, Dave McKeon's The Dust uh, the Dust Covers, the collected Sandman covers 1989-1997, does note that the model for the cover of number 10 is Kathy Peters, who is now the wife of Neil Jones, who modeled for number 11 with Kathy's hand. But, but no indication of, as to who this is supposed to be from the story. No. And I th- oh, that's fantastic. Well, let's let's move into talking about the title then. This seems like we can actually do this one. We can actually hit this one out of the park, probably. Uh, it's called The Doll's House. And my problem with the title, Glenn, <laughs> is the word the, because there's a lot of doll's houses in this. Um, the Citadel of uh, Desire, in some ways, is a house made of a giant doll. We've got Unity Kincaid's actual doll house. We've got you know, dream in his kingdom in some ways is like a doll's house that's about to be upended, perhaps by desire, perhaps by the Corinthian, perhaps by Rose as the vortex. There's a lot of doll's houses, so I almost feel this should be either drop the the or make the house plural. But uh, what are your thoughts on the title? Well, I took it to be referring to the very specific doll's house that Unity Kincaid has. That the, the one that I guess a very small dream is also hanging around in. But I, I saw the doll's house there as a kind of stand-in for the the damage that was done to the world because of Dream's imprisonment. You know, a stand-in, I guess, for the consequences of his absence from his realm. And another of those consequences, of course, is that the Corinthian is free. And the first thing that we hear him say is that it's time to play, right? That's what we hear the Corinthian say. And of course, that's something that you do with a doll's house is play. Uh, we did also hear Desire and Despair talking about games in the prologue to the, the story arc when Despair says that the, the elder three of the Endless don't play the games that the rest of them do. So play and games and maybe even toys, I think, are going to be a recurring motif of this story arc, just kind of based on all of these connections. Yeah, I think you're right. And in the most terrible of ways for perhaps the dolls themselves, like Unity, who um was unaware and uninvolved and certainly did not bring on the terrible stuff that happened to her throughout her life. Um, it could be that similar things might befall other people, whether it be Rose or whether it be Dream or whether it be uh, someone else. Well, and I think ultimately, and this is maybe looking ahead to our wrap-up episode in a few months about this volume, which which bears the same name, right? The whole thing is called The Doll's House. I, I suspect that we're going to end this story arc with the understanding that actually the world is the the doll's house uh that as we see here you know the fates are are back and in some ways it seems like a lot of the things that are happening to these characters are not things that are in their control that the fates somehow or some other power is playing with them and therefore also with just us as as regular people that uh that we're living in a doll's house and that maybe we're just the dolls that someone else is playing with so um, there are a lot of uh, unique and interesting uh, panels in this particular issue and a lot of different perspectives. But did you have a favorite panel, Glenn? 
Yeah, I think I gave this away already, but it is the massive two-page spread of the interior of Dream's Palace. Uh, I think by now people know that I am always a sucker for architecture and landscape in in comics. I mean, I like settings, right? It's something I'm attuned to in the material world as well, not just in, in comics. And I'm not sure what room this actually is supposed to be depicting, but it is really large. And it seems to be part of, I guess, something I would call an audience chamber. It, it's all marble. And the reason the real defining component, I guess I would say, are the, the three statues of nude women standing atop some pretty gigantic stone bases. And the, the statues themselves are, are massive. And their arms are all raised over their heads. And so this looks very much like Desire's Threshold, though they're all uh, holding something in their hands. Like they're holding an arch. It looks like the, the St. Louis Gateway arch, I guess, actually, which, which the threshold is not doing. And of course, there are three of them, which may have some connection to the Hakatii as well. And, and also jutting up from this room is just a, a large stained glass window in a, a 20th century uh, style of stained glass. It shows a, a blonde woman in a green robe and she's holding a mask in her hand. And, uh, on the top of the, the frame here, uh, like the arch that's holding this glass on the top of this, there's an ankh. Uh, though I'm not sure that the figure in here is meant to be death, uh, given that she's blonde. Uh, but the, the last thing that I'll say about this image, though there are a lot more things I would like to, to ramble on about, uh, the last thing that I'll say about this image is simply that there's no roof here. So the, the, the statues and, and the stained glass, uh, really, we might just say it's the four arches, really direct our eye upward where we see the crescent moon in a, a night sky there. And all of this has a real fairy quality to it. And it really just thrills me. I just find this to be a, a beautiful image with just a lot going on. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great image. Um, and I will note for um, readers, you mentioned that the woman in the sink, stained glass has a green kind of robe or otherwise cloak on. That is in the recolorized version. In the original, it's kind of a purple with some blue accent to it. Um, and there's a lot more kind of light color yellows and reds kind of behind um, that person. So it's a, it, it's a little more kind of fiery and a little more colorful and a little less fairy, but, but still a little bit in the, the version that uh, I'm looking at from the original Doll's House collection. And I like them both a lot. I do too, but the, the, the original version actually just makes this seem like, well, that must be Rose because it's got all these rainbow colors like her hair. Um, yeah, it, it does. Now that you mention it, it reminds me of Rose's rainbow colors. So that might have been initially what they were going for. And of course, it could be over time they've decided that they were going for something slightly different. Uh, I don't know. Um, the, the statues of the three giant women on top of the plinths holding the arches that you mentioned, um, their faces, from what little we can tell, seem to be just kind of betraying no emotion of any kind. And it's it's very kind of they seem to be holding the arches in a very kind of stoical, this is my duty kind of way, which nicely, I think, juxtaposes to Desire, whose arms in their statue are out, th are, are splayed out similarly, but very happy and exciting to be there. Um, and it could be that those are also, um, kind of betraying the view of how Desire sees herself and her functions versus how Dream kind of more stoically performs his functions or at least thinks he does. Yeah. Takes himself a little too seriously. I think is probably how death would actually describe that. 
Yeah. But there's some wonderful uh, art that we can't quite make out um, in the plinths um, under the columns. And, and I would really love to spend time um, in this visitation room or throne room or whatever it is, just kind of looking at all of those things. Also, there's a little, um, it maybe is a small statue of a unicorn on its hind legs, but it might also be just a mini unicorn who is standing up on his hind legs. It's hard to say. Yeah, it does look to me like it's meant to be a sculpture, and I actually think there's probably one at the other side. They seem to be sort of guarding the the stairs or standing at the edge of the stairs. But yeah, it could be a real unicorn. Who knows? Well, what was your what was your favorite panel? I think when we started, though, that that may have happened before we actually started recording. But you said that you weren't sure. But have you picked one out while we've been going through? Yeah, there were a lot that I liked, and there were none that I necessarily loved on this read through. But as we were talking about it, one definitely struck me and stuck with me more. Uh, and not just in the unsettling way that the Corinthian panels do. But uh, it was when uh, Rose is called out and Lucian gets very close. And we see, I think this might be one of the only times that we see, certainly up to this point, but even beyond, where we see that Lucian even has eyes behind his glasses. And we can see the stubble on his chin and kind of the whiskers of uh, of where his mustache would be if he let it grow in. Um, and it very much, even more so than turning the comic, I think drags me as the as the reader, as the viewer, kind of as an accomplice of roses into this image where I feel that very much, um, as you said, it's a wonderful piece of art. And it's it's Lucian just staring at me as Rose. And I think that that works really well, particularly when the panel next to it, Lucien is depicted in his normal kind of more comic fare where there's just not a lot of detail. And the, the focus oftentimes is on his kind of wild hair, which is always out of place. And he's got kind of, you know, pointy Vulcan or elven ears, depending on your pedigree there. Um, but here, because you've pulled in so tight, you don't see his ears at all, and you don't really see almost any of his hair. So it could be the face of, of anyone, but it looks like the face of someone who is very, very real and very much not a dream, unlike the images we've had to this point, um, particularly when Rose is seeing Brute and Glob and the Corinthian and Fiddler's Green and Blue tiles on a floor so um i think it, i think it's very effective yeah this is this actually kind of feels like it's the the never-ending story right where you suddenly realize that you as the reader are actually a part of the the story uh, that you're an integral part of of this process is it really does look like he i mean it's the most realistic eye i've ever seen drawn in a comic book and it really does look like he is looking not just at me but but sort of into me right like he really actually sees me the the reader it is kind of unsettling but it is also kind of inviting and i I like it as a kind of statement about the the role of the reader in this story as well right that the story doesn't really exist without uh, an audience and i mean it's significant in that i mean he's talking about who he's looking at and how it's a she which does not fit most comic book readers particularly when this came out but um still probably not a majority of comic book readers now um but also it he does mention that she's so young and i think that that also the that does capture kind of particularly the first time people encounter sandman tends to be when they are young so um it probably had more of an effect on me even the first time that i read it that i had just forgotten well, I think on that note, now that, that Lucian is continuing to just stare at me uh, from the page as I've said it on the, the desk, I think that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. 
And I'm Brent Helt. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and uh, let us know what you thought of the the Doll's House. I think we asked a, a number of questions here, but I think the most pressing one is, who do you think is on the, the cover? And if you've uh, listened to our episode about Gaiman's Hellblazer issue, Hold Me on Patreon, please uh, come talk to us about that as well. Uh, and please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Media if you haven't. And next time, we'll discuss The Doll's House Part 2, which has its own title, Moving In. Until then, pleasant dreams. <laughs>